Good morning, guys. Thanks for coming back. Um, my name's Drew. I'm the lead pastor of Salt City. So last week um, was our kickoff service. And so like Jordan was talking about, we, it was sort of like an extended family reunion last week. But now this is like the start of our family. And um, one of the distinguishing marks of the Salt City family is going to be that we teach through books of the Bible. So this morning, we are going to start studying the gospel of Mark. And we're going through this series called The Servant King. I don't even know how many weeks it is. It's a few months. We're going to be in this book for a long time. And the gospel of Mark is a gospel. And Mark makes this very clear from the beginning. And what you need to know is that gospel means good news. Who doesn't like good news? You guys know I got some good news this week. Um, Some of you may not know, but my wife is 20 weeks pregnant. And so we had the ultrasound to see what the sex of our sixth child, yes, I said sixth child, will be. And we went in and we found out that um, the Stevenson family is evening up. So our sixth child is a boy. And... I was super pumped. We think we're going to name him Jude. The way this works, I told our connection group leaders this, I throw out a name and you guys get to, for the next however many months, you get to argue with me whether it's a good name or a bad name. So we think his name's going to be Jude. Um, But anyway, that was good news and we're excited. And here, people ask us like, are you going to find out beforehand? Are you going to find out later? Well, you're sort of in this desperate position when you already have five kids because there's a lot to figure out. And so we need response time to like reorganize rooms and buy diapers and get all these things figured out. And so here's the thing, just in regular life, good news requires a response. Here's the reality, the, the better the news is, the bigger response that it requires. And what Mark is gonna say to us through this gospel is that Jesus is the best news ever. The reality that Jesus came to this earth and took our place on the cross and rose from death is such good news that if you see it rightly, it will radically change your life forever. And so what we're going to get this morning is an introduction to this gospel, looking at the first 15 verses, and we're going to see that the good news of Jesus demands a radical response from us. In other words... These first 15 verses are basically a nutshell that show us the entire gospel in preview form. So let's look at Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 15 verses. Those verses will be on the screen. It says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So this is the word of God. What we quickly see is that the good news is going to be about Jesus. And so we're going to look at Jesus' person from three different angles to start out. And then we're going to see what our response to him ought to be. We're going to see the royalty of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, and the humanity of Jesus. So let's just look at those one at a time. First of all, we see the royalty of Jesus. Now we got to dig a little bit to get to the royalty of Jesus. The first thing that you need to know is that Mark is writing this good news to a non-Jewish audience. He's writing it to the city of Rome. So these people do not have high familiarity with the Bible. We see this right away in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. It starts off this way, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now he could have said, as it is written. Had he been writing to a Jewish audience, they would have known where this passage came from. But apparently they don't. So he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, somebody who is biblically literate, their mind would have immediately understood the context of this passage, which Mark is quoting from actually a combination of Micah chapter 3 and Isaiah chapter 40. And the first thing that would have likely come to their mind is an understanding of who the Lord is. So they would have understood that there's this prophecy, there's this prediction about a future prophet who is coming, who is going to prepare the way for the Lord. And their mind would have immediately gone to the context of the book of Isaiah, and the most clear passage about the Lord is found in Isaiah chapter 6. Some of you might be familiar with this. It's one of the most famous passages in the whole Old Testament. So Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, gives us a clear picture of who the Lord is. It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Bottom line, the Lord is amazing. The Lord is God. 
The passage says he is holy, holy, holy. The way that you made something an emphasis in the Hebrew language was through repetition. This is one of the only attributes in all of scripture that is ascribed to God, not one, not two, but three times. It is saying the Lord is in a category by himself. And this is proven specifically in this passage by the angel's reaction to him. There's the seraphim. And it says, with two they flew, with two they covered their eyes, with two they covered their feet. What you need to know in the context of this passage as we dive into it, is that the reason that the angels are covering their feet is because feet are a sign that you're a creature. In other words, God is so holy, they want to try to hide from him how unholy or unlike him they are. So they're covering themselves up and heaven is shaking and there's smoke everywhere. This person is in a category by himself. That's the Lord. And so here's what Mark is saying. This is the first part of the good news. He's saying these two passages, Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 40, were fulfilled in this little unknown place in the middle of the Middle East. He's saying there's this guy named John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was talking in the wilderness and he was preaching and here's what he was doing. He was preparing the way of the Lord. And who was the Lord? It was that Galilean carpenter named Jesus. And here's what John the Baptist says. He says, when I look at Jesus, what I see is not just the Galilean carpenter. I see the Lord Isaiah 6, Lord, has become a man. And here's how we know that that's what he's thinking. He says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Okay, now think about this. Remember, feet in the Bible are a sign that you're a creature. The angels are hiding their feet from the Lord. And now, all of a sudden, what John the Baptist is saying is, the Lord has feet. The Lord is wearing sandals. Okay, guys, now, now just think about sandals, even in our day, right? I never wear sandals to preach. I, I thought about wearing sandals this morning, but I decided against it because I didn't want you guys to think, oh, that pastor's wearing sandals. <laughs> even up until this point, Right? So it would have made sense, like I was thinking, maybe I wear sandals, and then at this point I'm like, see, I'm wearing sandals, it's kind of awkward wearing sandals to preach, right? But I didn't want to do that because I didn't want you to think that pastor's wearing sandals, I'm never coming back to this church again. <laughs> okay, so even for us as creatures, we feel like there's appropriate times to wear sandals and there's inappropriate times to wear sandals. What John the Baptist is saying is, the Lord, the royal king of the universe is walking around in sandals. And I am unworthy even to untie his sandals. You see, when you rightly see God for who he is, you, like John the Baptist, 
will find yourself unworthy even to do the most menial work for him. There's this constant sense of unworthiness. You understand, he's not saying he's going to do something impressive. This was the job of a household slave. Household slaves untied sandals. Household slaves would then scrub the manure off of the feet as people walked through the streets. He's saying, I am unworthy to do the most menial task for the Lord. So the first thing we see this, of this astounding good news as we open up the Gospel of Mark is we see the royalty of Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. It gets even more amazing. The news gets even better. We see the humility of Jesus. Secondly, let's pick it up in verse 9. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now remember the context. John is out in the wilderness, and he's just a weird dude, right? He's wearing camel skin, and he's telling people to repent, and he's eating bugs dipped in honey. Guy is just an odd duck. And he's out there in the wilderness, and people are coming to him, and, and the scene's kind of crazy. We picked this up from other gospels. There's some religious people there, and like religious people always do, they're kind of standing on the sidelines like looking like, I'm just glad I don't have to confess my sins. And then there's all these sort of weird people that are standing up in front of this huge group of people and they're confessing their sins and then they're getting baptized. And the text says that they're getting baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. In other words, the water of baptism is symbolically washing them clean of their sins and pointing forward toward this guy that John the Baptist is talking about, the one whose sandals he is unworthy even to stoop down and untie, who is actually, he says, not going to cleanse them with water, but cleanse them through the Holy Spirit. Bottom line, purpose of baptism is to represent being forgiven of your sins. So here's what Jesus does. He goes to John the Baptist, he says, I want to get baptized. In one of the other Gospels, we find out that John's immediate response, immediate response is to protest. He's like, no, I'm not going to baptize you. Why? Because he's like, I know who you are. I know that you're the Lord. You don't need to get baptized. You don't have any sin. You don't need to be forgiven. And so here's what Jesus does. He steps down in to the baptismal, and everyone else is sort of giving their testimony, like, you know, I committed adultery on my wife. That's why I'm here. I got to get washed clean. I've been lying about stuff for 10 years, and so, you know, I got to tell everybody about that, and I got to get washed clean of that, and on and on and on. There's some really messed up stuff people were saying. Jesus steps into the water, and he doesn't confess any sin, and John the Baptist dunks him under the water, and he pulls him back up, and you can just see the religious people sneering at him. Like, I thought this guy was special. I thought you guys were saying that this was the worthy king of the universe. 
Why is he identifying himself with sinful people? See, we'll say all the time here at Salt City that baptism is a public declaration that you're best friends with Jesus. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's publicly declaring that his mission is gonna be to be best friends with messed up, broken, sinful people. Now, I was talking to my neighbor. Her name's Ellen. She's 12. And uh, <laughs> I was talking to her about her first day of school. Now, 12's a big age, if you remember back, because it's a transition from sixth, fifth to sixth grade. And at least where I come from, and Ellen's the same way, you start middle school, which means you start switching classes. And so the first question I had for her after her first day was, who did you sit with at lunch? Because I just remembered that feeling. Do you guys remember that feeling? Like whenever a new school year started, maybe I was the only awkward kid who was even afraid of this when I was in high school, but it's like, who am I gonna sit with at lunch? And the reason you're thinking about who you're gonna sit with at lunch is not because you would have no one to sit with at lunch, but it's because you want to sit with people that are at least as cool as you are. Because the lunchroom is the place where you determine how cool any single person is. And so you go to the lunchroom and you sit with people at least as cool as you are because you don't want to be associated with those losers over there. Do you understand what Jesus is doing? He comes down to earth, the king, the royal king of the universe. He's a carpenter for the first 30 years of his life. He finally goes public with his ministry and he goes and sits at the least cool lunch table on earth. He goes out with this super weird dude dressed in camel skin and a bunch of crazy people who actually think that water will wash away their sin. And he says, those are my people. I'm going to identify with them. I am not ashamed to be seen with them. Do you know what gave Jesus the inner strength to be able to do that? Do you know why Jesus doesn't mind being associated with losers like you and me? It's because his identity is not contingent upon what people think about him. His identity is totally wrapped up in what God thinks about him. So he's sitting at the loser's lunch table and God shows up and he's like, that's my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. And Jesus just soaks in the grandeur of being loved by God. It doesn't matter that the religious people are sneering at him. It doesn't matter that he's being associated with the losers. He doesn't care. He has a type of inner freedom to be able to love outcasts because his identity is not dependent on what us ordinary people think about him. He's not afraid to be seen with you. Isn't that amazing? Jordan said during announcements, it's okay that you're not okay. My wife and I didn't fight on the way to church this morning, but we did fight last night. <laughs> when he said that, I don't know about you, but I'm just like, God loves me. Like, I don't even have to stand up here and pretend. I don't have to pretend for you guys that I'm somebody that I'm not. 
Because you know what really matters is what Jesus thinks about us. And here's what scripture says. He's not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. No matter what you did last night, no matter what you did this week, no matter what family you're from, Jesus has the humility to identify with you. Incredible. The royal king of the universe puts sandals on to identify with you. But guys, it gets even better than that. We see the royalty of Jesus. We see the humility of Jesus. And thirdly, we see the heroism of Jesus. So although Jesus identified with us, he's unlike us in this very important respect. So God says to him, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The very next thing that happens is this. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, there's this very sort of immediate application that we could make of this text. Immediately when I read this text, I thought of Hebrews chapter Four, where it says that Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And it's true that Jesus has walked in our shoes. He's really and truly been tempted, and so he understands what it's like to be tempted. But I think that there's a more relevant application of this very specific text. Because you see, there's a bigger story going on in the Bible that this passage in Mark is a part of. We saw at the beginning of this passage, it starts off, the beginning. Now, whenever you see the beginning, it makes you think back to in the beginning, the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God. What you have to understand about this passage is that it marks a new beginning. The world has been a fallen and broken place. The reason that it's been fallen and broken is because long ago, there was this guy who was created named Adam. And God made Adam the representative head of all of humanity, which meant Adam's ability to obey God was going to set the course for the rest of human history. And here's what happened. God came to Adam. He said, don't eat from that tree. Here's what Adam did. He ate from the one tree God told him not to eat from. And what happened is something totally crazy. God cursed the whole world. All of the brokenness, all of the sin, everything that is messed up that is happening in the world today flows from that one decision that Adam made in the Garden of Eden. And so here's what's actually happening in this passage. Here's what Mark wants us to be thinking about. The Spirit of God is driving Jesus not into a garden, but into the wilderness. And Jesus is out in the wilderness. And just like Adam, Jesus is tempted by Satan. But it's not about one tree. It's not a simple type of obedience. 
Jesus doesn't eat for 40 days. He's out in the middle of the desert. And Satan just keeps coming after him and coming after him and coming after him and coming after him and coming after him. And And there's all these wild animals prowling around. I mean, it's really just a dark scene. And what we know is that unlike Adam, Jesus did not give in to the temptation of Satan. He withstood. He stood firm in the face of temptation. And the reason for that is because Scripture talks about Jesus being the second Adam. In other words, because our first representative, Adam, messed it up, God sent a second representative, a hero, named Jesus. Everyone between Adam and Jesus was a total screw-up like Adam. Israel had thought King David was going to be their hero. They thought Solomon was going to be their hero. They thought all these people were going to be their heroes. And all of them messed up. Finally, Jesus comes on the scene, and we get this glimmer of hope that he's not going to mess this thing up. He's the hero that all of us are looking for. You guys know, I'm really enjoying right now being a hero. And here's what I mean by that. My kids think I'm awesome right? They're so, they're, they're little, they're little. And so like, they think I'm the strongest person in the world, right? And so like regularly at the dinner table, I'll just like flex my muscle and my kids will be like, dad, can I touch it? Right? And, and they think one of the coolest things, we have eight foot ceilings in our house. And I tell the kids, I'll be like, hey kids, jump up and try to touch the ceiling. And you know, they're like this tall. So it'd be like me jumping, trying to touch this ceiling, you know? And I'm like, you can't touch it, but guess what? And then I'll just jump up and touch it, right? So I've never been the hero before. Like I've never been that athletic or that good at that many things. And so it's just been really fun and I'm soaking in it. I'm just enjoying it, right? Because here's what's inevitably true. I'm gonna have teenagers. And actually, at this point, you can pray for me in advance. We're going to have five teenagers at once, 19 down to 13, all right? And here's what's going to happen. The tone of our entire house is going to change. I'm no longer going to be our kid's hero, but what? They're going to say, you are the biggest loser. Here's what's going to happen. They're going to find out what's actually true, right? (laughs) That I'm just not that great. And here's what we find out as we read the Bible and as we look in the mirror, we're all trying to convince ourselves that this isn't true, but we're not heroic. We're not that great. We're not that amazing. We're trying to pretend for each other that we are, but we actually don't really believe it ourselves. So here's what scripture teaches us, that Jesus is the hero that we're looking for. Look what um, Romans chapter 5, verse 19 says, as it contrasts Adam and Jesus, it says, for as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. You see what that's saying? It's saying every single person who has been affected and infected by the curse that was transmitted through Adam, what they need, what we need is not just to sort of clean up our lives and try to be impressive for God. What we need is a new representative. We need someone who can obey for us in our place. And what we see in this passage at the beginning of Mark's gospel is we see Jesus 
passing the test that Adam failed at, which gives us a glimmer of hope that Jesus is going to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. You see, this passage is ultimately going to be fulfilled by Jesus on the cross when he hangs there for the sin of the whole world, for all of the effects of Adam's sin as our representative. And in so doing, he transfers to us his moral perfection. So here's the good news. You don't have to perform for God because God performed for you in Christ. And if you will just latch on to what Jesus has done and receive it, God too will look at you and say, you are my beloved son or daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Okay, so we have this amazing news about Jesus. We're gonna see it over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. We have a lot of foreshadowing to what Jesus is gonna do on the cross and as he rises from death. And so I've got kind of, Kind of a boneheaded question, actually. And that's how should we respond? The reason I'm saying it's kind of a boneheaded question is because this news is so good, it's so amazing, that it ought to just change us on the spot. Okay, imagine if somebody said to you, here is a billion dollars. I don't think we'd sit around in circles how should we respond to this news? How should I respond to this? And I think sometimes as Christians, we look at the gospel and we're like, what is the application of this news? And I think we should be like, holy cow, there's so many applications of this news. This is amazing. And so part of what I want to say is dream about what the application is. This is sort of the broad categories that Jesus puts the application in. Mark 1, 14 through 15, says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And he says, this is what our response should be. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So in light of the fact that the royal king of the universe has sandals on and he stood on the earth and he humbled himself to identify with us, and he stood in our place as our hero where we inevitably fail, he says our response ought to be to repent and believe. Do you know what repent means? Change your entire way of thinking. Change the very purpose of your life. One answer to the question, how should I respond, is change everything about your life. This should flip your value system upside down. It is so radical and so amazing. The only answer I can give is it's got to change absolutely everything. It's got to flip everything upside down. We don't take it far enough. No one does. Because our response has to be proportional to how great the good news is. And then we're to believe. That is, we are to place our trust in Jesus. We are not to lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge him. And he will make our paths straight. We are to transfer our trust from ourself and our culture and transfer it onto Jesus. 
Let me give you some rails to run on because I don't want to leave it that general. Okay, let's think through this a little bit so we can have some specific applications to put into our lives this week. First, I just want to acknowledge this challenges the baseline cultural narrative in our day, which essentially says you are your own king. Do what you want, do what you feel like, do what you desire. This is in direct opposition to that. It says someone greater than you is on the scene and your job is not to do what you want, it's to do what he wants. And so here's three potential applications, what that says, what that says. One is, change the way you think about money. He changed the way you think about money. Here's how I got that. We said the royal king of the universe put on sandals. Can you imagine what Jesus' shoes looked like in heaven? He gave up everything to come to the earth to be with us. It is actually very little for him to ask us to give up everything to come and follow after him. This should radically reorient the way that we think about our money. We should begin to think about it as his money and do everything we can to leverage it to see other people come to know Jesus. We should change the way we think about people. Jesus climbed in the waters of baptism to identify with you and me, too. Not to bring up his social status, but actually to bring it down so that he could love other people. How are you treating other people? Are you using other people to bring up your social status, or are you loving people in order to lead them to Jesus? And thirdly, we should think differently about morality. Jesus, in the wilderness, was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He had nothing to eat. Can you imagine the suffering that he went through? He kept his mind and his heart pure. He did not give in to temptation for you. And we know the Bible's very clear, Jesus is very clear about what he wants us to do with our sexuality. Really, you're going to argue with him about that? You're going to argue with the royal king who came down to the earth, identified with you, and fought all the temptations of this world so that he could clothe you in his righteousness, and you want to talk to him about your sexuality? You want to demand that you get to have sex with whoever you want to? It doesn't make any sense, does it? If Jesus really is who his friend Mark said he is, he demands our trust, our allegiance, and our entire lives. Let's pray. Jesus, you are amazing. Uh, I'm just overwhelmed once again um, that you came to the earth that is remarkable in and of itself. Then that you humbled yourself. You became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you made yourself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. Oh God, help us to let go of our agenda for our lives and find freedom 
in the agenda that you have for our lives. Help us to repent daily when we turn away from you and to believe and trust you more and more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.